So in study four, we shall be examining what Paul had to say on the subject of being an apostle. Being an apostle. Paul's keen to establish his credentials as an apostle. And he's also keen to emphasise that his calling came from God himself. That he was no self-proclaimed apostle. Somebody who waltzed in and said, hey everybody, I'm an apostle. Many others were. There were lots of them around. We probably don't realise that. The early church was full of these people coming in and out who called themselves apostles. They were self-proclaimed apostles. And Paul is also keen to establish the fact that his authority didn't come from mere men. His authority came from God. And so what we find is that at the start of most of his letters, he begins with a statement to that effect. In study three, of course, there was one letter where he didn't begin a statement with that effect, if you remember, for all sorts of reasons, and that was the letter to Philemon. Turn with me then, please, to Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, the very first epistle in the canon of the New Testament, though not the first epistle that Paul wrote. Romans chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And if you were to turn over to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1, you would see he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So in other words, I'm not just standing up in my own strength. I have been called as an apostle by God himself. And 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and his letters to Timothy and Titus begin with much the same kind of proclamation. Others might lie about their apostolic credentials, but not Paul. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 7. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 7. I hope you'll find most of the references that I use, not just the ones that we look at together, but all of the ones, are listed there on your outline for you, so you can follow them up if you wish to in your own time. So 1 Timothy 2 and verse 7, he says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. So I was appointed an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Now, the reason he says that is not because he might think people think he's lying, but because all these other apostles were lying if they claimed to come from God. He said, I'm not lying like those others are implied. Okay, I have been called. I was appointed a herald and an apostle. Paul also made these statements because people were challenging his apostleship. They were calling it into question. These groups of false teachers, these groups of so-called apostles who set themselves up as such, were challenging Paul's credentials. And so he makes these statements, these emphatic statements. And the strongest assertion of his divine calling to be an apostle comes at the start 
are the very first letter that he ever wrote. And if you think back to study one, you'll know exactly which one that is. It's the letter to the churches in Galatia. So the epistle to the Galatians. You may remember that after Paul had left that region of Galatia, Judaizers arrived and were calling his apostolic credentials into question as they visited the churches he'd established in Galatia. And we looked at all that in study one. You remember the Judaizers were those who were saying, to become a Christian, you've also got to become a Jew. You've got to be circumcised and you've got to obey this, this and this. Okay? And they were going around the churches saying that, Okay, and Paul is, and they were calling into question as they did it, Paul's credentials to be an apostle. So there was this battle going on, you see, for the, for, for the hearts and minds, if you like, of the, of the people in the churches. You know, who was correct? Who should they be listening to? Who should they be following? It's something that we often don't appreciate because we've just got the New Testament and we just take it from there. But it, wasn't, it was a lot more complicated and complex in the early church. And Paul refutes their challenge to his divine appointment as an apostle with these words. Galatians 1 verse 1, if you'd like to just turn to it. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. And he says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So again, he's refuting what these so-called apostles are saying about him and their challenge to his apostleship. And writing to the church in Corinth, which had been infiltrated by false teachers, Paul sarcastically refers to them in 2 Corinthians 11.5 as, and I quote, super apostles. Super apostles, I just love that. He says, and as for these super apostles, you know, this is the tone of voice. He's being sarcastic about it. Because they're not even apostles, let alone super apostles. They just think they're super apostles. They think they're superior to him who's been called by God. So he sarcastically refers to them that, as that because they got an inflated opinion of their own importance and they consider themselves superior to Paul. In fact, arrogance was pretty much a characteristic of all these false apostles. And yet, on the other hand, what you see about Paul in his writings is his humility. Paul was always humble. He was self-effacing. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. Good example of his humility in this verse. He says, quote, I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Tremendous humility. You can see it there, can't you? Quite clearly. I'm the least. I don't deserve it. I persecuted the church. It's all of God's grace. What I am is nothing to do with me. It's all of God's 
grace. Indeed, it's true to say that these false teachers showed none of the marks of an apostle. And Paul declares unequivocally, and if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, we read this unequivocal statement, and I quote Paul saying, I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. So Paul is beginning to set out here what marks a person as a true apostle of God. Signs, wonders and miracles. They were done among you with great perseverance, he writes. Now by this, Paul's implying that his adversaries had not done so. They had not perform signs and wonders and miracles but he's saying I have these happened among you they were done among you with great perseverance not just once but it was a regular thing now all the time these things were happening because God was using me among you whereas these this other lot where are the signs where are the wonders where are the miracles so those things are marking him out as a true apostle. Apostle, I should say. And elsewhere in his writings, Paul mentions other tests which help to identify whether a person is truly an apostle or not. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 10 to 15 tells us that true apostles establish churches. Apostles established churches built on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. Another mark of an apostle he makes is that they are people who remain faithful to God. They remain faithful to God, not using deception, not distorting God's word, not cherry-picking God's word, but preaching it in all its fullness and he talks about that in 2 Corinthians 4:2 and Colossians 1:25 true apostles also don't care what judgments men make about them and he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 4 1-4 they don't care what judgments men make about them now this was in stark contrast to the false apostles the false apostles were telling the people what they wanted to hear to win their approval. And he mentions that in the second epistle to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. They were playing to the gallery. They played for men's approval, for men's applause, for men's acquiescence, for the praises of people. But Paul says true apostles don't care what people say about them because they are keen to be true to God's word, not twist it and distort it and just preach ear-tickling sermons. 
And Paul asked the Galatians, and indeed all other believers come to that, to apply this test of apostleship to him. And by implication to apply this test to these men pleasers as well. To decide whether he or they are false apostles. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 10. You will see he sets this out in the form of questions. So in Galatians 1 and verse 10, Paul writes, and I quote, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? You know, you judge, you tell me. This is what he's saying to them. You test it out. You test whether I'm an apostle or not. And apply this test to all the others as well. He goes on. If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So basically what he's saying is if you come to the conclusion that what they're doing is just trying to please men, then they are obviously not servants of Christ. Whereas I am. You apply the test, he's saying. When you get confronted with people like this, apply these tests. So that's about the calling and marks of apostleship that Paul identifies and draws attention to. Paul then goes on to speak about how he has been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel. He has been entrusted to preach the gospel. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 11. There's a couple of scriptures here that I'm going to give you where the word entrusted actually appears in what he says. And here we have it in 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. And I'm quoting, The glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. The glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And then in Titus 1 and verse 3 he says, and I quote, He brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. And the similar statements you can find in Colossians 1.23 and 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. Paul speaks of being, and I quote, compelled to preach. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Not just entrusted, but compelled to preach. It's like this has taken over Paul's life. It is his driving force. It's his raison d'etre, for those of you who know a bit of French. It's his reason for being, to preach. I am compelled to preach. If I don't do it, I might as well just curl up and die in a corner, is basically what he's saying. I am compelled to preach. And as he goes on in there, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. Christ has entrusted it to me. He expects me to get on with it and to do it. 
That is my life's calling. Compelled to preach. And Romans 1.9 tells us that Paul preaches the gospel with his, quote, whole heart. His whole heart. Paul never did anything by halves, did he? And he certainly didn't preach the gospel by halves. He preached it with his whole heart. And he's proud to do so. It's pr- he's proud to do so because he knows it has the power to change lives. Turn to Romans 1 and verse 16. Romans 1 and verse 16. And he talks about why he is proud of the gospel. And he says, and I quote, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. In other words, it's life-changing. That's what the gospel is. That's why I'm compelled to preach it, because it's life-changing. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, he says, and I quote, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, so it's not just a matter, Paul is saying, of me standing up and being eloquent, and talking and coming out with fancy phrases. It's about power. It's got the power to transform. And with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, as the Holy Spirit works in the hearts and lives of people who actually hear the gospel and causes them to respond to God's love and what God is saying through the message. Paul makes it clear that unlike the teachings peddled by the false apostles who opposed him, the message he preaches, the message he preaches in his human frailty comes from God and is validated by God's power at work in people's lives. So I suppose you could say this is another test. You know, what are the messages of the false apostles doing? probably stirring up contention, division, disunity. But what I'm preaching is changing lives because it's coming under the anointing of the Spirit of God. Uh, Turn with me to Galatians 1, verses 11 to 12. Galatians 1, verses 11 to 12. And here we read, and I quote... The gospel I preached is not something that man made up. Now, see what he's implying here? He's implying what the false teachers are preaching is exactly what they have made up. They've made it up. Therefore, they're to be disregarded. But the message I'm bringing is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So again, you can see how Paul is setting himself against 
these false apostles saying, look at the message, listen to the message. Know that I have received this by revelation. I haven't made this up. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he says, and I quote, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So again, he's making this point. What I'm giving you, the gospel message, has come from God. He's revealed it to me. It's not something I've come up with. But we have this treasure, by which he means the gospel. That's the treasure. The treasure is the gospel. In jars of clay. Now again there you see Paul's referring to his own frailty. And to his own unworthiness. I'm just a jar of clay. I could be broken tomorrow into pieces. But God has given me this treasure, this gospel to pass on to you. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God. And not from us. And if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 2. Verses 15 to 16. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. Paul speaks of the effect that preaching the gospel has. He speaks of the effect that preaching the gospel has. And I quote 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. That's the effect of preaching the gospel. To those who accept it, it's the aroma of Christ. It's the fragrance of life. To those who reject it, he describes it as being the smell of death. The choice that has to be made when we hear the gospel. Turn with me to, over to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Here we see that Paul is determined to keep on preaching the gospel that God has entrusted to him, even though it's difficult sometimes to evoke a positive response to it. The number, in other words, don't think that Everybody just responded to the gospel when Paul preached it. We, we can get these impressions, can't we? That all Paul had to do was walk into a church and everybody put their hand up. It wasn't so. It was a struggle. And it was difficult to get people to respond positively to it. Why? Well, he tells us here in 2 Corinthians 4, first of all in verse 1, which says, and I quote, Therefore, since through God's mercy... We have this ministry. We do not lose heart. In other words, if people are not getting saved like I want them to, or responding to the gospel in the way I would love them to, then, okay, I'm not going to lose heart. Sort of basically thinking, it's their choice. I'm not going to lose heart. And then he goes on, if you pop down to verse 4, he gives a reason why this is such a, a struggle. He goes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. So you see, Paul knew that he was in a spiritual battle when he was preaching. He knew that the, 
announcing the gospel was a matter of defying the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of the world. That's what the gospel was. And people had to battle this out for themselves. And they had to come to their own response to it. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. So it's a battle, it's a fight. And of course Paul talks about spiritual battles elsewhere and we'll come to those in due course. Unlike the false teachers, Paul will never twist God's word. Stay in chapter 4 there and look at verses 2 and 5. He will never twist God's word, nor will he elevate himself as someone special or important. Again, this is what the false teachers were doing. This is what these super apostles were at. They were always twisting the words of God. They were always elevating themselves as someone that the congregation ought to listen to. And I quote, first of all from verse 2, in which he says, Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Then down to verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We could put it like this, I guess. The super apostles were preaching, look at me. Follow me. Whereas Paul is saying, don't follow me. Look at Jesus. Follow him. Completely different. Now here's another point of difference. Whereas these false teachers and so-called apostles hoped to make a living from peddling their teachings to all who would listen to them and support them financially as a result, Paul makes it clear that he is not in the business of preaching the gospel for money. And if you turn back to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians and find verse 17, we'll see what he has to say about it. That he's not in the business of preaching the gospel for money. And I quote from verse 17, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it to get you to support me financially. What I'm in it for is to preach the gospel and bring glory to God. And you can compare that with these others. And then you can see the difference. Now here's something interesting. Well, actually, as an apostle, Paul has every right he has every right to expect financial support from the churches. But he decides to forego that right to achieve a higher goal. He's every right to expect financial support, but foregoes that right 
to achieve a higher goal. In 1 Corinthians 9, which you might like to turn to, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul defends his right to receive support and his right to refuse support. So in 1 Corinthians 9, he defends his right to receive support and he defends his right to refuse support. Now 1 Corinthians 9, from 1 through to 27, will give you the whole argument that he goes to. And if you're interested to read it in your own time, fine. We haven't got time to go through that verse by verse tonight. But I will give you a little summary of it. In verses 1 to 6, Paul maintains that as an apostle he has the right to receive support so he can devote himself completely to preaching the gospel rather than having to, time, having to spend time making tents to support himself. Now you may remember in study 3, when we looked at Paul's relationship with Priscilla and Aquila, how for a time he did make tents. He was prepared to do it. He made tents with them. They were tent makers united, if you remember. But there came a time when really I, I see it at the urging as much of Priscilla and Aquila. They said, look, come on, you should be preaching the gospel. We'll make the tents. We'll support you. You preach the gospel. And then in verses 7 to 14, Paul also cites how society works Old Testament law and practice and the teaching of Jesus to support his case. So again, if you want to look through how the argument develops, that's where it is. But that's basically it in a nutshell. He's got the right to receive support and he has the right to refuse support. However, in spite of the strength of Paul's case for support, he says in verse 12, of 1 Corinthians 9 but we did not use this right but we did not use this right we did not use this right to financial support he goes on on the contrary we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ you see Paul doesn't want the message of the gospel to be associated with or tainted by the making of money. Nor does he want it said that his motive for preaching the gospel was personal gain. He's making that quite clear. I'm not making a mint out of going around preaching the gospel. That's not what I'm about. You can look elsewhere and see people who are doing this but not me. So there would have been people who said to Paul, well, why do you do it then? If, if you don't do it for money, why do you do it? If you turn with me to, um, in fact, stay in 1 Corinthians 9, and look at verse 18. In answer to the question, what's in it for you, Paul, he says, and I quote, what then is my reward? You're asking me, what my reward is? Okay, I'll tell you. And I go on with the quote. Just this. Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it 
free of charge. And so, not make use of my rights in preaching it. So you see, this is in the context of he's entitled to receive support and he's also entitled to refuse it. And he makes such an issue out of it because these so-called apostles were in it for the money. And Paul wants nobody to be in any doubt at all that he's not preaching the gospel for money, he's preaching it free of charge. Obviously because he wants people to come to faith in Christ. Paul also explains that he's been entrusted with the particular responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Turn with me to Galatians 2 and verse 7. Galatians 2 verse 7. And I quote, They saw that I had been entrusted, there's that word again, with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. They saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Then in Ephesians 3, 7 and 8 he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in Romans 15 and 16, he talks about himself as, and I quote, a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, proclaiming the gospel of God. And you can see further references to his mission to the Gentiles in Romans 1, 1 Galatians 1, 15 to 16, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 7. Now you may remember that God had previously told Ananias that this was to be Paul's mission in life. If you can cast your mind back to the Damascus um, scene and events in Acts 9, verse 15, God said to Ananias, and I quote, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name, where? Before the Gentiles. For the Gentiles. Now, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles results in strong opposition to Paul from many Jews. We saw that back in study two. from many Jews who are, and I quote, hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 to 16. These Jews were hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Now, being an apostle and preaching the gospel often resulted in Paul and his co-workers experiencing hardships and hostility. Hardships and hostility. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 2 
and verse 2. Where Paul writes, and I quote, We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. And all the events about that are, of course, in Acts 16. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. And in 2 Timothy 1, 11 to 12, he says, And of this gospel... I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. So being an apostle and preaching the gospel with it went the joys, obviously, of seeing people respond, but hardships, suffering, opposition, all kinds of problems. So much so that Paul came to expect such experiences. Wherever he went, in Acts 20, verse 23, we read these words, and I quote, I only know, says Paul, that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Imagine having that on your fridge magnet in the morning. What's going to happen today? Oh, prison and hardships are facing me every day. And referring to the victory procession staged by a triumphant Roman general returning from battle, with this picture in mind, Paul says ruefully that the hardships he had to face made him feel as if, and I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, made him feel as if, quote, God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. And that's what actually happened in the Roman processions. And he said, I feel like the men on the end, condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. That's 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9. That's the hardships. That's the suffering. It was tough. It was tough being Paul. However, Paul delighted in such hardships, seeing them as sharing in Christ's sufferings. Turn with me to Romans 8 and verse 17, where we read, and I quote, We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8, 17, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Then in Philippians 3, verse 10, he says, and I quote, the fellowship, or he talks about the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And you get similar themes in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10 and Colossians 1 verse 24 sharing in Christ's sufferings and Paul lists some of the hardships and sufferings he's had to endure turn to 1 Corinthians 4 1 Corinthians 4 verses 11 to 13 
And there he lists some of the hardships and sufferings. And I quote, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. It's quite dramatic language, isn't it? Creates a picture, doesn't it, in our minds. What it was and what it meant to be allied with the gospel. And the fact that he and his co-workers endure such hardships and suffering is seen by Paul as proof of their devotion to serving God and their commitment to the ministry he has given them. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you will see verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 9. He talks about his sufferings and hardships again. Proof of devotion to serving God and commitment to the ministry. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 4, and I quote, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Then down to verses 8 and 9. Genuine, yet regarded as impostors. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Hardships and sufferings. Now, despite all these hardships and suffering, Paul and his co-workers show a strong resolve and determination to persevere in preaching the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 4, if you just flip back a couple of chapters, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 to 9, he talks about this. His strong resolve and determination to persevere in preaching the gospel. And I quote 2 Corinthians 4, 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. In other words, he didn't understand everything that was going on, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see, as far as Paul is concerned, the sufferings he undergoes are part, as part of his ministry prove that he is Christ's servant, unlike the false teachers and the self-styled apostles who are not suffering at all. So in other words, if you want to see another mark of apostleship, look at what I'm suffering for, what I'm preaching. What are they suffering? And therefore, their claims to be servants of God in what they are saying and demanding are completely false. And on one occasion, Paul focuses particularly on those Judaizers that were, you know, the ones I mentioned that were donging his steps around Galatia. And if you turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 22 to 27, you will see that he really goes to town 
on this subject of hardships and sufferings. 2 Corinthians 11, starting at 22. And he says this, and he's got the Judaizers in mind, particularly in the first part of this, where he says, quote, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked." Not to mention being flogged and imprisoned in Philippi and stoned and left for dead in Lystra. And in his letters written from prison, Paul styles himself as the prisoner. The prisoner of Christ Jesus. Or the prisoner for the Lord. And you can see those references in Ephesians 3 verse 1, Ephesians 4 verse 1, and 2 Timothy 1.8. He also refers to being in chains, is the phrase he uses, in chains for the sake of the gospel. And you can see that in Ephesians 6.20, Philippians 1.7, and Colossians 4.3 and 18. But he gloriously points out in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, that although he may be chained, and I quote, God's word is not chained. God's word is not changed. Hallelujah. I think. So, all these hardships and sufferings that uh, Paul suffered, I hope you can uh, begin to see why he made such play of them now. How did he respond to them, though? How did he respond to these hardships and suffering? Well, let's have a look. First of all, we could say that he responded with rejoicing. Think of the scene in the jail of Philippi, when chaining the stocks in the inner cell, that they rejoiced at midnight. You can see Acts 16.25, and we looked at that briefly in study two. Paul clearly followed Christ's exhortation in Matthew 5 and verse 12, where he said, and I quote, Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad when being persecuted. And enlisting some of the hardships he suffered, Paul proclaimed himself to be, and I quote from 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, 
yet always rejoicing. I mean, I'm, I'm stunned every time I read that. Because I think, gosh, if I, if I had to enjoy a, endure a fraction of this, I, I'm not sure I could honestly put my hand on my heart and say I would always be rejoicing. But that is the mark of the anointing of the Spirit upon this man to carry out that task. So that was the uh, one way he responded, with rejoicing. A second way we can say he responded by keeping the hardships he faced in perspective. If you turn with me to Romans 8 and verse 18, you'll see what I mean. He keeps the hardships that he faced in perspective. And I quote, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See how he keeps it in perspective? It gives it an eternal, a heavenly perspective. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So that's the second way we can say he responded. The third way is he responded by maintaining a steely resolve to carry on regardless. A steely resolve to carry on regardless. Look with me at Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. And there he says, and I quote, Press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So he says, I press on. So it comes through his determination, his resolve, no matter what. You see, Paul was driven. Paul was driven by his Damascus Road experience. He never forgot how his life had been transformed and his life's ambition had been turned on its head. And no matter what hardships or suffering come his way, Paul is now determined to know Christ, to live for Christ, and to put his life in Christ's hands. And we see that quite clearly in Philippians 1.21 and 3.7-11. To know Christ, to live for Christ, to put his life in Christ's hands. If you turn to Philippians 3 and just down to verses 13 to 14, this shows how single-minded and focused he is. And I quote, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. So you see how he is single-minded and he is focused despite his sufferings and hardships. And Paul certainly had a lot to forget and put behind him, didn't he? Especially all those memories of all those people he persecuted to death and put in prison. So he says... Forgetting what is behind. I mean, I think that must have, you know, when he was tossing and turning at night, couldn't get to sleep, that must have kept coming back to him, don't you think? I mean, the horror of it, of what he did. And yet he says, I'm putting that behind me. I'm not going to let that deflect me from the future. I'm not going to allow what's happened in the past 
to put me off doing what I believe God has called me to do. And he likens himself to a runner. Now, of course, a runner only looks forward. Because if you start turning to the side and looking back, you're going to trip over, you're going to run into another athlete or something. A runner looks forward, the runner looks at the tape, the runner looks at the finish line, the runner looks forward. And he says that that's what he's going to do and to give his all to win the prize. So Paul's result, his resolve to serve the risen Lord, no matter what the cost. So that's his third response, if you like, by maintaining a steely resolve to carry on regardless. The fourth way we see that he responded was by appreciating the fact that hardship and suffering have allowed him benefits. They've allowed him to experience the power and the presence of God in new and deeper ways. For example, they've allowed him to know more of God's comfort. They've allowed him to know more of God's strength. And thirdly, they've allowed him to know more of God's deliverance in his life. So let's look at, uh, let's look at those three a little bit more. First of all, the comfort. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 5. Paul speaks about God's comfort, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 5. And I quote from verse 5 there, For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Do you see, he puts them in the same sentence, sufferings, and comfort for just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So he uses this flowing imagery, this sort of river imagery, if you like. And in Romans 8 35 and 39, he talks about the ultimate comfort. The ultimate comfort is, and I quote, that trouble or hardship or persecution can never separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the ultimate comfort. Nothing, in other words, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he identifies in that this trouble, hardship or persecution. Moving on then, Paul speaks about experiencing supernatural strength in times of weakness when he was suffering. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12, please. 2 Corinthians 12, because we're going to sit with this for the next few minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. First of all, we're looking at verse 10. And here Paul is speaking about experiencing supernatural strength in times of weakness when suffering. And I quote, For Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Now it's important to grasp the context of this statement. The context. It comes at the end of a section where Paul's explaining about the amazing experience he had of being, and I quote from verses 2 and 4 earlier in that same chapter 12, caught up to the third heaven, caught up to paradise. So Paul speaks of this experience when he was caught into the very presence of God. And we learn from verses 1 and 4 there that in the very presence of God he received, quote, visions and revelations from the Lord and heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now that must have been quite an awe-inspiring experience. And to prevent Paul from becoming arrogant about having had such an experience, and going around boasting, saying, hey guys, you never guess what experience I've had. I've been into heaven, I've seen this and I've seen that, you know. To prevent that, verse 7 tells us that to prevent him from becoming arrogant and full of self-importance as a result of receiving, and I quote, these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. What little people might know about Paul, everybody seems to know about the fact that he had a thorn. And they use it in various ways to describe various situations. Now Paul never reveals exactly how this thorn manifested itself. That's the first thing to say. But it was obviously a severe affliction. How do we know? Well look in verse 8. Because three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Not once, not twice, but three times. I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from me. But God did not take this thorn away. This affliction, you see, not only kept Paul humble, but gave him something. It gave him the opportunity to experience God's grace. To experience God's grace in empowering him to pursue his mission despite this thorn. This thorn was not going to hold him back. Because God's grace and God's power were going to be such that he could overcome and he could continue. And this turned Paul's thinking on his head, you see, because from now on he rejoices that experiencing God's supernatural strength in his life didn't just apply to coping with this thorn, it was there to enable him to deal with all the hardships and sufferings that he encountered. So he experienced God's strength. So that's why he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Why? Because I experience more of God's grace and more of God's power in my life. That's why I'm strong. So the weaknesses did not deflect him. They did not hold him back. So that's why he said, back in verse 10, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in these troubles sometimes. Because I know God is faithful and God is going to strengthen me. And God is going to empower me. And I'm going to feel his spirit, wow, in such a way that I've never felt before. Bring it on. That's his response to suffering and hardship. 
And the third word we mentioned, we mentioned comfort and we mentioned strength and we mentioned also deliverance. Paul speaks about experiencing God's deliverance as he has learned to trust and rely upon him more in times of suffering. And speaking of the hardships he and his companions suffered during their time in Asia, Paul says, and I quote from 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. But this has happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So, hardships are a way of experiencing God's deliverance. You also find him talking about that in Philippians 1 and verse 19. Now, that confidence in God's deliverance for the future, born of Paul's past experiences of hardship and suffering, is also expressed when he reminds Timothy of the persecutions and sufferings he's endured. So in 2 Timothy 3, verse 11, we read, Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And then he goes on in chapter 4, verse 18 of 2 Timothy to say, The Lord will rescue me from every attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So right at the end of his life, when he's writing to Timothy, this second letter, he's still rejoicing in God's deliverance and still believing for the future. And those, those words are particularly poignant, you know, when you think what situation he was in, in that prison, awaiting death. And still, he's believing that God can well deliver him from this situation. But in fact, we know that that was the last letter that Paul ever wrote, second epistle of Timothy. Now, despite all the hardships and sufferings that he faced, there was much to delight and encourage Paul during the course of his ministry as an apostle. Looking at 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9, you will see that he gave thanks for the enriching impact of God's grace in the lives of the Corinthians. Paul rejoiced to see how they'd accepted his teaching about Christ and how they had all the spiritual gifts they needed to stand firm against paganism and the immorality that surrounded them. And Paul was also buoyed by the fact that those, those in the churches at Ephesus, Colossae and in the surrounding area were continuing to follow Christ and to show love for one another. We see that in Ephesians 1.15 and Colossians 1.3-4. He was also encouraged by how firm the Colossians were in their faith and how orderly they were in everything they did. Chapter 2 and verse 5, unlike the... Um, Corinthians. And Paul was delighted in the active support of the Philippians for his ministry, which he describes as their, and I quote, partnership in the gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 5 of Philippians. And he also rejoiced, verse chapter 2, 17, in their sacrificial service. And in chapter 4, 10 to 18 of Philippians, we see that he appreciated their concern for his welfare and their generosity in giving. And as for the Thessalonians, well, Paul rejoiced in their firm and growing faith, in their hope in Christ, in their increasing love for one another and how they were impacting 
the community. And you can see that in 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10, chapter 2, 13 to 16, and in 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 to 4. Sticking with the first reference there, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10, we see in those verses that Paul was impressed by how they had embraced the gospel message despite, and I quote, severe suffering, verse 6, and shown, and I quote from verse 4, perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. And Paul in verse 7 shows how delighted he was in how they had become, and I quote, a model, a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, in other words, in that particular area. Looking at 1 Thessalonians 3, 7-9, we see that they, the Thessalonians clearly brought great joy to Paul's heart. And I quote, In all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? So looking around the churches, there was a lot to encourage Paul's heart. And he also rejoiced in the companionship and development of co-workers such as Timothy and Titus. And all those who supported him in the spread of the gospel. You know, like Priscilla and Aquila we looked at in study three. And he was thrilled to see that the gospel was, quote, bearing fruit and growing. He writes to the Colossians chapter 1 verse 6 bearing fruit and growing all over the world. And Paul would also have been encouraged as he experienced God's, God leading him on his travels. Even when God closed one door, he opened another. For example, the Spirit prevented them from entering the province of provinces of Asia and Bithynia, but gave Paul a vision, which resulted in them going to Macedonia instead. Acts 16, 6-10. So when one door closed, his experience was God opened another door. So God was leading them on the travels. And Acts 23, 11 tells us that Paul, the Lord also appeared to Paul in his cell in Jerusalem, encouraging him, encouraging him that he would testify about him also in Rome. And even on his journey to Rome, an angel appeared to Paul, not only to encourage him, but so he could encourage all those on board the ship that they would be safe, no matter the fact the ship was going to be wrecked. That's Acts 27, 21 to 26. But Paul realised something very important. He realised that as an apostle, he needed to rely on God's power in proclaiming the gospel, rather than simply on his own persuasive eloquence and great learning, which he both had in spades, if you like. You know, he was not lacking in either of those. But he realised he needed God's power. That wasn't enough, his own eloquence and knowledge. And he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1, 3 and 4, and I quote, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So again, Paul is emphasising it's not about words. The Gospel is not just about words, but it's about power and the working of the Spirit. And in Colossians 1, 27 and 29, he writes, and I quote, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. In other words, he's testifying to the fact that it's down to God's power and his spirit that he's able to do what he does. And he was also humble enough to realise that he needed prayer support. Don't think of the Apostle Paul needing prayer support, do you? But yes, he did, and he recognised it, and he asked for it on several occasions in his letters. Romans 15, verse 30. I urge you to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Ephesians 6, 19. Quote, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Yes, his words were important, but he wanted them to be inspired by the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, quote, Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Colossians 4, 3-4, quote, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Terrific humility again, coming through from Paul, in contrast to all those other so-called apostles. Pray for me that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. And finally we see that as an apostle, Paul always sought to be an example. An example of what a disciple of Christ should be so that the believers had a pattern to follow. He writes to the Corinthians, who probably needed an example to follow more than most, in verse chapter 4, verse 16, and 11, verse 1, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. So you see, Paul wasn't just setting himself up as an example. He was setting himself up as an example of what it means to follow Christ. There's a difference. And he's urging them to imitate him in that. And in Philippians 3.17 and Philippians 4.9, he says to them, quote, Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So in other words, Paul wasn't just coming along and saying things, he was living them. Living them in front of them as an example 
in the church or that the churches could draw from to see what it meant to be someone who was following Christ. And I want you to imitate me, he said. I want you to follow my example. And reminding the Thessalonians of reminding the Thessalonians how he and his co-workers worked to provide for themselves so as not to, quote, be a burden to any of you. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 9, and I quote, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We did this in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. That's 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 9. And finally, even in his conversion, Paul sees himself, as he writes in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16, he sees himself as, quote, an example, even in his conversion, an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Why does he say that? Why does he consider him to be an example even in his conversion? Well, because if God is able to save him, who he describes as, and I quote, the worst of sinners, then nobody, nobody is outside of God's saving grace. And I think that's a really wonderful truth to close this study with. Nobody is outside of God's saving grace.